You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's the second racial discrimination lawsuit filed against McDonald's this year. More than 50 black former franchisees say they were driven out of business after being pushed by the company to set up shop in crime-ridden inner city and urban areas with low-volume sales and high security and insurance costs and denied the financial help extended to white franchisees. Joining me is Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. Start by telling us about the claims of the black McDonald's franchisees. Sure. The franchisees have sort of teamed together to bring forward two types of claims. One's a discrimination claim, uh, and the other is just an ordinary contract claim. And uh, they have some similarities with one another and some differences with one another. But the discrimination claim is based on one of the very oldest discrimination statutes in the United States. It's been around since 1866. How do they claim they were discriminated against? Location, location, location. Is that their main claim, that they weren't given the good locations? That's part of their claim. It's a grab bag of a bunch of different claims. But one of the claims that the plaintiffs are making here was that they were systematically steered to some of the least profitable, highest cost locations that were in uh, either a dangerous or rundown neighborhoods and weren't really given the opportunities uh, to take on the more uh, the more lucrative sorts of franchise that 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 were standalone franchises uh, in more well healed uh, parts of town. That's only part of what the claims were, however, because there were additional claims that are related to how McDonald's engaged in routine uh, or supposedly routine inspections of the franchise establishments, whether they graded them more harshly uh, than they would have graded white-owned establishments, whether the franchisees were sort of forced by the franchises without really examining the, the, the nature of the business and sometimes forced to sell businesses that weren't doing as well uh, without uh, fully vetting the market. So uh, much of this is location, but I think a lot of it is also the the nature of the relationship, the uh, nature of the treatment that the franchisees alleged that they had at the hands of of McDonald's relative to what white franchisees were getting. So what kind of proof might the plaintiffs be offering? I take it they'll be offering statistics about, you know, how the the black franchises have been shrinking for years. What other kinds of things would they offer? Yeah, that's going to be really depend on the nature of which type of claim they're making. The discrimination claim they're making is a little bit tricky. It not only has a short statute of limitations and only lasts for four years, which means some of those long-standing patterns aren't necessarily going to be addressable. But the discrimination statute also requires that the plaintiffs both demonstrate and plead that there was actual intent by McDonald's to discriminate against them, not just that their protocols by whatever measure led to unequal opportunities, but that McDonald's intended to discriminate against them. And so that's going to be a limitation on the discrimination sort of claim. It's not going to be enough merely to show that the number of franchisees that were black declined uh, either relative to the total number of stores or, or relative to the, the total number of other franchisees. Uh, the other thing that's going to be a, a challenge for the plaintiffs to demonstrate in a discrimination claim, they've got to be able to demonstrate that their race was what lawyers will call a but-for cause of uh, suffering loss. In other words, if they were not black, they would not have suffered the losses that they are uh, alleging here. And this is some aspects of the case that 
really have changed quite recently due to a recent Supreme Court opinion that put this higher burden of demonstrating that the discrimination caused uh, the bad outcome. Uh, McDonald's, no doubt, in this part of the case is going to say that, listen, we were you know, in a contract relationship with entrepreneurs who knew that they were taking on risks. And McDonald's will probably argue that if the plaintiff suffered losses, those losses were due to a whole host of causes uh, that could also include business decisions made by the franchisees themselves. And the key thing to note about this is that ties will tend to favor the defendant or McDonald's in this case. So the causation element of the of the case, I think, is going to be a little bit um, challenging from the plaintiff's perspective when it comes to the discrimination claim. Their argument may be a little bit less problematic and, and, and a little bit more promising when it comes to their straight out claims that McDonald's just didn't live up to what they said they were going to do in their franchise agreement. And my guess is the plaintiffs are going to push really hard on this as well. One thing to note is that, you know, McDonald's is perfectly free in their franchise contracts to promise more than what they would be obliged to do under anti-discrimination law. And and here, that's one of the elements of what the plaintiffs are claiming, that if you, if you look at the franchise agreement that McDonald's signed with these franchisees, that's exactly what McDonald's did, that they had general provisions in these contracts that said that they were going to make franchises available and business opportunities available to their franchisees in ways that were not going to discriminate amongst the different uh, franchisees, that they were going to be reasonable in the way that they inspected and evaluated McDonald's franchises. And one of the big claims, particularly of the franchisees who were longtime franchisees, is that McDonald's just didn't live up to its own contractual obligation. And to the extent that they can demonstrate that, that becomes somewhat of a less challenging argument to make when it gets into litigation. McDonald's said that while it may recommend locations, ultimately it's up to the franchisees and that the company has sold high-performing franchises to black franchisees. So how does McDonald's prove the first part of that? So this is going to be a big factual aspect of this case should it make it all the way to litigation. And uh, all the different plaintiffs may not be sitting in exactly the same position on this. But, uh, you know, McDonald's in, in defending its actions, whether it's the discrimination charge or the breach of contract charge, is going to have to, you know, demonstrate or uh, at least, you know, offer proof that, listen, we were offering analogous forms of opportunities to all of our different franchisees about expansion, about buying up other stores. The plaintiffs are claiming that that's just not true, that McDonald's didn't offer black franchisees the same opportunities that were being offered to white franchisees, that they weren't uh, being inspected and uh, reviewed under the same set of criteria. Obviously, it's a very factually detailed set of allegations that both parties, I would expect, are going to come out of the box with you know, fairly uh, detailed accounts. Some of this may actually devolve into sort of statistical accounts, which you can see a little bit already in the complaint about uh, to what extent were those opportunities, even if one or two lucrative opportunities were offered to, to, to black franchisees, that still could mask a more systematic system that tended to deprive black franchisees from those sorts of opportunities. And, and a lot of this may end up coming down to making not just one or two examples of an argument, but trying to establish overall patterns in, in one direction or another. So this sounds like an uphill battle for the franchisees as far as this lawsuit is concerned. 
Well, it's an uphill battle in some respects, but you have to remember that you know the, the plaintiffs are essentially litigating in two courts. One is the legal courts, and the other is the courts of public opinion. We are right now in a moment where economic inequality and institutionalized racism are, are hugely salient political and economic issues, more so than they've been maybe even during the last half century. And and McDonald's hasn't been a bystander to this either. It staked out a very bold and public position on Black Lives Matter at the very end of July, including an acknowledgement that, you know, some people in the McDonald's system feel like they haven't been given a fair opportunity. And they even articulated a plan for trying to bring greater diversity to their community franchisees. And so, you know, on some level, this lawsuit is timed at an interesting moment because it's calling on McDonald's not just to talk the talk, but also to walk the walk. And the optics of defending the lawsuit might make it look like McDonald's is running the risk of looking sort of disingenuous about their stated public commitment. And so the simultaneous case, I guess, in the court of public opinion is something that, you know, on some level is independent of the legal case, but in many ways is highly intertwined with the legal case. On top of that, it's probably important to note that McDonald's is already embroiled in two pretty messy, litigious matters involving the departure of their chief executive and a high-profile discrimination suit brought by senior executives in the organization, which in many ways uh, helps contribute to this one. So while I would say that certain aspects of the legal case when viewed alone are a bit challenging, they also intertwine with some of the public relations aspects and the optics aspects of the case. And that could give rise to, to more leverage than you might otherwise expect if you were just analyzing the, the merits of, of the legal case alone. This is at least the second racial discrimination lawsuit filed against McDonald's this year. Would that seem to lead to McDonald's wanting to settle these out of court before these allegations become wider known at a trial? Probably so. One thing that's definitely true is that once allegations and facts come out in one trial, they can easily be picked up by other litigants in other trials. One does get the sense that McDonald's has been negotiating pretty heavily with some of the plaintiffs in this case to see if they could settle before the, the complaint was filed. That evidently failed, but it's um, certainly logical to assume that those settlement efforts are going to be ongoing throughout the discovery phase of this particular lawsuit. Uh, and, you know, many items of litigation end up, you know, ending in, in settlement as well. Um, and so it's, it's no doubt the case that McDonald was mindful of the fact that some of the allegations in various lawsuits are common to one another, and they may not uh, be uh, in the best position to try to defend adamantly every single one of them, and settlement may be a, an attractive option. Uh, that's not to say that, that McDonald's doesn't have reasonable legal argument at its disposal. It's just that the legal arguments that it has are just one part of the picture. An another part of the case that I expect is going to come out a little bit um, is that you know, McDonald's may argue, you know, hey, listen, why would we deliberately go about setting up franchisees that were destined to fail? Why would that ever be in our interest? Our rents are usually predicated against the revenues that are generated by these restaurants. And so it just wouldn't, wouldn't make any economic sense for us to put franchisees deliberately in a position where 
uh, they are going to fail. And th that's got some plausibility to it. On the other hand, I would expect that the plaintiffs are going to point out that three quarters of the value of the assets that McDonald's as a corporation has is its land. And if that real estate is appreciating, then the key way that you make money off of it is really just to hold on to that real estate, even if you toy around with you know, franchisees that may or may not be successful in their own uh, businesses, particularly in poorer neighborhoods where uh, recent tax incentives such as enterprise zones have given rise to, you know, some property appreciation, then the, the value of just holding onto the property may end up swamping a lot of the value associated with whether you've lived up to your ob obligations to your franchisees or not. McDonald's has, of course, access to incredible legal resources, is it possible that they could just sort of overwhelm the plaintiffs in this case? It's certainly possible. And, and during the last 50 years, that is not an unfamiliar story where a well-capitalized defendant ends up overwhelming a plaintiff in a case that, regardless of its merits, the plaintiffs end up deciding to drop. One of the things, however, that's worth noting is certainly in the last 20 years, maybe the last 15 years, an entire industry of litigation finance has sprung up so as to bankroll some of these plaintiffs who would have otherwise ran out of money. And to the extent that there is a potentially viable legal claim there, maybe combined with some of the public relations issues and, and the willingness of McDonald's to pay to have something go away, may end up fueling some of those fires in ways that simply weren't possible 20 years ago when the litigation finance industry was at its very infancy and in some cases not even legal in a lot of uh, a lot of jurisdictions. So, uh, so uh, this this, I, this idea of the you know of the of the well bankrolled corporate defendant basically being able to spend plaintiffs into the ground it still exists, but it's probably more moderated than it used to be because of the availability of litigation finance. Thanks, Eric. That's Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. The legal saga of Michael Flynn will continue. The D.C. Federal Court of Appeals has ruled that the Justice Department and the former Trump National Security Advisor cannot force a trial judge to dismiss the criminal case against him without a hearing. The 8-2 decision was the result of a rare on-bank hearing after a three-judge panel ruled in favor of Flynn in June. This ruling is the latest development in a legal case that has taken unusual twists and turns, leading to the latest separation of powers fight between a veteran federal judge and the Trump administration. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. So, Bob, what was the reason the court gave for reversing the decision of the three-judge panel? The federal appeals court rejected a bid by Michael Flynn, President Trump's first national security advisor to force the immediate dismissal of the criminal case in which he'd been convicted of lying to FBI agents. The appeals court judges decided that Flynn's request to have the case immediately dismissed was premature since the U.S. District Court judge had not yet ruled on the dismissal request by the Department of Justice. The Court of Appeals also rejected Flynn's request that the judge be removed from the case arguing that the trial judge was biased against them and he was entitled to a different judge to make a determination as to sentencing. The D.C. court confirmed what many legal experts have been saying, that this was an unprecedented move by Flynn. 
saying that Flynn has not cited any case in which our court or any court issued the writ to compel a district court to decide an undecided motion in a particular way. Does that put into context how odd this motion was at this time? Yes, this whole case has been extremely unusual for a whole variety of reasons. And what it really turns on is this question of who has the right to determine whether a case should be dismissed. Essentially, the executive branch clearly has the authority to commence or to continue a prosecution. That's something that is up to the Department of Justice. But Rule 48A requires leave of court before a case is dismissed, and that's exactly what this entire controversy is about. What does leave of court mean? Does that give the trial judge the authority to probe the Department of Justice for the reasons that they are dismissing a case, or does the trial judge simply have to accept the dismissal at face value and dismiss the case regardless of any concerns that the trial judge may have about the motivation behind the Department of Justice's decision? What were the dissents by two Republican appointees based on? The en banc decision, which is a decision by all 10 active circuit judges that were not refused from the case, lined up against the two dissenting Republican appointees, those two judges in May had formed the majority of a three-judge panel that initially ruled in Flynn's favor. In the first ruling by the three-judge panel, the two judges in the majority found that the trial judge did not have the authority to question the decision by the Department of Justice to dismiss the case. In the opinion written by the two-to-one panel decision, Judge Rayo had argued that there was no prosecution left here because there was no prosecutor. Essentially, that it is the Department of Justice's lone authority to decide whether to prosecute a case, and if they, for whatever reason, decide not to continue that prosecution, there is no prosecutor to argue the government side of the case, and therefore, the case had to be dismissed. But what's really underlying all of this is not so much the final ruling In other words, the question of whether or not the prosecution will continue because it's unlikely that it will. What this hearing is really about is the question of whether or not the trial judge gets to probe into the reasoning behind the Department of Justice's decision to drop this case. Essentially, what the dissenting judges are arguing is that the trial judge does not have the authority to probe into the internal decision-making by the Department of Justice, that that's an executive department decision, and that what the court here is doing is usurping the authority of the executive department to decide whether or not to prosecute criminal cases. This is obviously a victory for Judge Emmett Sullivan, but how much of a victory? And what I mean by that is, did the D.C. Circuit Court define what kind of hearing he can hold Can he actually dig into the administration's motives for dismissing the case against Flynn? What this ruling does is it sends the case back for consideration by Judge Sullivan. Judge Sullivan could dismiss the case as requested or request that the case move to sentencing and have some kind of hearing to determine whether or not the Department of Justice was correct in making a decision to drop this case. But the Court of Appeals also sent a very clear signal to the trial judge that they do not expect this hearing to turn into any kind of a circus. And in fact, the lawyer who was representing Judge Sullivan before the full Court of Appeals actually represented during the argument 
that there will be no discovery from the Department of Justice during any kind of hearing. There will be no evidentiary hearing. And in fact, she argued that the judge may well decide to dismiss this case after the parties simply filed briefs. The argument that was essentially made on behalf of Judge Sullivan was that it was premature at this point for the Court of Appeals to force him to dismiss the case since he had not yet even ruled on the government's motion to dismiss. So, Bob, explain the motion for mandamus and what the D.C. Circuit ruled about it. Well, the opinion by the full Court of Appeals really was a procedural decision. It really turned on the question of whether or not the Court of Appeals should be granting this rarely granted writ of mandamus. And a writ of mandamus is something that is only infrequently used. It was really not a surprise that the full Court of Appeals ruled the way it did. Because in this case, Judge Sullivan had not actually done anything yet. He had not even had a hearing yet. He'd not ruled against the Department of Justice's motion to dismiss. And so in this case, it was difficult or really impossible for Flynn's lawyers to argue that there would have to be some manifest injustice if this writ of mandamus was not granted and that they had no adequate alternative means in order to satisfy their claim or gain the relief they were seeking. Here, the relief could simply come on appeal. It goes back to Judge Sullivan. Judge Sullivan could make a decision. And what the Court of Appeals says is if you don't like the decision he made, you can be right back before the Court of Appeals again, and we will reconsider the case at that point. Is this one of the longest guilty pleas you've ever seen? Michael Flynn pleaded guilty in December of 2017. Yeah, this case does have a rather convoluted history. It began with a guilty plea in 2017 where he admitted to lying to FBI agents about his conversations with Russia's ambassador to the United States in the weeks leading up to President Trump's inauguration. Then General Flynn agreed to cooperate with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Then he hired a new lawyer, and in 2019, he began to retreat from his prior position trying to undo his guilty plea. Initially, the Department of Justice opposed efforts to withdraw the guilty plea, and then, in an about face, took the position that the case should be dismissed. That's what led us to where we are today, but this has been a protracted battle where we've seen the defendant admit twice in court to lying to federal agents and then is now retracting his plea and wants the case to be dismissed. Interestingly, the Department of Justice's logic for dismissing the case is not that General Flynn did not lie to federal agents but it's that it wasn't material. They essentially attacked the investigation itself and said there was no basis for the interview of General Flynn at the time, and therefore the statements that Flynn made to FBI agents, even if they were false, were not material to any matter under investigation. That's the basis that the Department of Justice has suggested to Judge Sullivan as the reasoning for their decision to drop this case. You know, Bob, if this case were at an earlier stage of the proceedings, not just at the point where the judge will sentence Flynn or dismiss the case, how could a court force prosecutors to continue with a case that they didn't want to proceed to trial on? Well, and that's exactly what the government has argued, what Flynn's lawyers have argued, and what the dissenting judges have argued. They're basically saying dismissal of this case is inevitable. There is no way around it. You don't have a prosecutor here to argue the case on behalf of the government, and therefore the case can't proceed. So why don't we simply dismiss it now rather than have a hearing that is designed according to the government and according to Flynn's lawyers simply to try to embarrass the Department of Justice 
by peeling back the layers of their internal decision-making and try to suggest that there was something improper about that decision. Did it strike you as odd that in one of the dissenting opinions, the judge basically said that Judge Sullivan was biased against Flynn? It seemed like a, a broad assertion to make against a fellow judge. It was unusual in that the battle lines here were starkly drawn where you had judges making harsh assessments against one another, something that you don't often see. To accuse a judge of bias is really to attack their core integrity, to say that they are not in a position to rule impartially on a case. Here you had the dissenters essentially arguing that they should have granted Judge Flynn's motion to have Judge Sullivan reassigned and have another judge hear this case because he had made certain statements during the criminal case that showed his bias. Ultimately, the majority of the Court of Appeals found that that was an extremely high bar and did not find that the defendant had met it in this case. Are there still unsettled questions about the power of courts to check the executive branch in these kinds of cases? The Court of Appeals went to great lengths to try to point out that this was not a partisan decision that they were not mandating uh, an outcome one way or the other here, but essentially viewed this as wholly procedural, that they felt that the trial judge had not yet ruled on the case and it was not their position to usurp the judge's authority and presume what kind of ruling he was going to issue here. So they sent the case back to Judge Sullivan, although they did send a clear signal that they expect this hearing to go forward uh, very promptly, and that they do not expect it to, to turn into an evidentiary hearing where witnesses would be called, and this would turn into essentially a trial about the Department of Justice and their decision-making process. I think the Court of Appeals knows that at the end of the day, Judge Sullivan will likely end up dismissing this case because there's really not many other options, and that eventually this case will be resolved at the trial court level. And if for some reason it's not, it will come back to them and they'll have an opportunity at that point to make another decision. But at that point, they will have a final decision by the trial court upon which to base their ruling. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a part of McCarter in English. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.